All right, just a quick note as we start the episode with Dr. Damon Smith. Um, excited to talk white mold today. You might notice as you were uh, looking at the show today that this is labeled science part one. We're going to try a new technique for the podcast for a while. We're going to break into two segments. So in the first segment, we're going to cover um, the science of the the disease or um, uh, agronomy topic that we're discussing. And then in part two, we will discuss the management. We got feedback from our listeners, which we really appreciate, basically saying that they would like to be able to digest the science as one part and the methodology or management as another part. You will notice at the end of this episode that the editing is a little bit clunky. When we recorded with Dr. Damon Smith, we had not uh, made that decision yet. So uh, stick with us through a little bit of clunky editing. We are going to keep our releases uh, basically on the same cadence. So we're still going to release the full uh, part one and part two um, in the same week. And then we'll release each additional show um, every other week. Always appreciate our listeners. Thank you for your engagement. Thank you for your feedback and enjoy White Mold Science Part One with Dr. Damon Smith. Welcome to A Penny for Your Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by Sean Bloomgren and Andrew Penny from Central Iowa. On our show, we discuss all things agronomy, high yield management, and give you real time updates on what we're seeing and hearing in the field. We'll also gain insight from industry professionals as we bring you relevant and timely information on current agronomic practices. Thank you for joining us. Well, Andrew, welcome back. Um, Excited to have you introduce our next guest on A Penny for Your Thoughts. Yeah, so I'm excited too. Uh, We get to listen to one of the foremost experts on uh, white mold, uh, Dr. Uh, Damon Smith. Damon, how are you doing today? Doing all right. How about yourself? Very good. Very good. Excited to hear from you. So, yeah, pr- appreciate you joining us today, Damon. Um, do our listeners a favor, I guess, and give them a little bit about your background, uh, where you went to school, and the position you currently hold. Yeah, my, I'm an extension field crops pathologist here at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I'm also a professor in the department. I got my degree, um, my degrees at North Carolina State University. So I went there for my master's and then stayed on uh, with my PhD there and uh, received, uh, you know, the PhD in 2007 and then uh, went to Oklahoma State for uh, five years as the horticulture crops extension pathologist there. And I moved to Wisconsin about 10 years ago now. So it's been a whirlwind tour. I've seen lots of different uh, crops and cropping systems, but, uh, you know, field crops in the Midwest is, is where I've settled and stayed. I love it. So we start our show with a consistent theme, which is to ask our guest, um, and it's neat to kind of hear your background there. What are you most excited about in agriculture? Yeah, the digital ag uh, space is uh, probably one of the most exciting areas, um, you know, from my standpoint. I'm also working in that space. 
I'm, I'm trained as a as an epidemiologist, uh, which which means I spend a lot of time just trying to understand how epidemics uh, move. And my my twist on that is is really to use that expertise in, in forecasting systems. So I'm sort of immersed in the digital ag space at the moment. Uh, we're we're working on uh, disease prediction tools. We're doing a lot of uh, big data work. We're we're trying to interface. Uh, disease uh, information with weather parameters and that sort of thing to really bring the uh, disease cycles and 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 that sort of abstract uh, theory and and complicated math that we use on the science side bring that to the farmer and and to the field so we can make some educated management decisions. It seems like with the complexity of a lot of the diseases that we spend time talking about on our show, um, I'm excited to see the clarity around the big data piece, because certainly predictive modeling could be really critical for helping us, especially with, with the fluctuations we see in weather and, and um, just a lot of the challenges we're facing. So excited to hear you uh, kind of working down that path and would, would love to stay connected on those projects as well. Yeah, it's an exciting area, and I've been working on this stuff for 20 years, so it's finally nice to get some love in the real world. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Finally, finally technology's catching up with all these thoughts you've had in the, the back of your mind for the last 20 years. Yeah, finally. And our stuff doesn't sit on a, a paper in the library, which is nice, too. We're actually getting it out into, into folks' hands, which is, which is great. Absolutely. Nice. Well, uh, I wanted to start just, you know, Thinking broadly about white mold, you know, I, I thought it was it would be good to bring you on here because you know, for, for my travels across the state and just listening to growers across the Corn Belt, you know, we just had that grower edition not too long ago, and someone in Illinois was was talking about white mold. So, so I thought it'd be good just you know, as as I continue to to see white mold in different areas and, and kind of spread, I thought it'd be good to maybe start at the beginning. So, so if you could, Damon, can you can you start with you know, kind of the beginning of, of the the life cycle of of sclerotinia stem rot. In other words, white mold uh, for us. Sure. Yeah, I'll start um, at what we call the survival structure stage. So this this organism, this fungus, makes a hardened uh, structure uh, called a sclerotium. We'll just call it a rat turd because that's what everybody <laughs> refers to it. You know, refers to it as. Uh, but it it does essentially look like little tiny rat turds uh, in the in the soil, and those can be found in in layers in the soil profile, but really it's the ones in the upper two inch profile that are most important because those are the ones that are likely going to germinate and then produce a, a mushroom-like structure, which we call an apothecium. And and so that that whole process from the survival structure to that mushroom-like uh, structure takes uh, quite some time. And we spent a lot of uh, time working on trying to understand what sort of drives that phase but it's essentially as the soybean canopy closes we get a nice dense canopy that changes the microenvironment and can trigger the formation of of that small mushroom that mushroom formation is really really critical because without that mushroom at least in soybeans we won't get infection because the spores have to come from within the field from those from those mushroom-like structures. So they're ejected up into the canopy. Uh, and the really important timing for this is when soybeans are in bloom. So from the start of bloom, when we see those first flowers at R1, all the way through to uh, the first initial pod at that R3 growth stage, that's really the window of opportunity for the fungus uh, to infect. So the majority of infections happen in, in soybean through the flowers. And then it takes about somewhere between two and three weeks for the uh, fungus to actually grow down into the stems, 
uh, colonize that stem and then start to um, erupt uh, through the, the surface of that stem where we get that white cottony growth that we see uh, in, the, in the field sort of mid to late season. And that's really, you know, when I got to Wisconsin, that was a that was a tough thing for folks to wrap their head around because fungicides were becoming uh, sort of important in the white mold space at that time, and folks wanted to wait and see the white fluff uh, to, to spray. But really, we needed to apply those fungicides back, you know, when those spores actually infected, you know, three three weeks or so prior. Once the once the fungus colonizes, erupts, uh, it'll um, basically kill the plant and then you get the formation of new sclerotia and then when we run our combines through the field we harvest those plants and drop those sclerotia back out on the soil so that's kind of the, the complete cycle it is what we call a monocyclic disease so it has just one cycle per season we don't have multiple cycles like we do you know say in a, a corn crop with gray leaf spot or something like that so it's from a management standpoint that's nice because there's a real you know, a targeted window of opportunity for us uh, and our management. Yeah. So, so Damon, you, you mentioned the sclerotia in the, you know, the apothecia and then those, those apothecia produce ascospores, right? That get shot up. How does this pathogen spread? And, and I, I kind of asked that because, you know, thinking about how most diseases spread, you know, usually through wind events and spores, but with, with white mold, it, it seems like, you know, we've had it in select areas for a, a a long period of time in just over the last, I would say five years or so, I would say I've, I've seen it move, you know, typically in Iowa, we think of it in Northern Iowa and, and I saw it in central Iowa last year in, in Southwest Iowa. So, so I feel like I, it's been moving faster than, than what I think it traditionally would is how does it move? And, and what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, from an epidemiology standpoint, that's an interesting thing, right? Because, um, you know, I spent a lot of time just trying to understand how these organisms move by themselves, right? And if we look at sclerotinia, the fungus that causes white mold, it, it is a fairly slow mover if it's left to, you know, its its own devices to, to colonize, right? The spores can be windblown. They can move some distance if they make it through the canopy. The thing about it in soybeans is they generally uh, don't make it make it up above that canopy. So they, they're ejected. They hit the bottom of the, the soybean canopy, and then they kind of just drop back down. So we, we call that a steep dispersal gradient because um, essentially, you know, it's just a couple of feet maybe, you know, underneath that soybean canopy. So when we look at situations like you're describing where it's moving a long distance that's where humans probably become a really important piece here and and one of the things that we think is happening um you know and this is actually analogous to the weed science uh world and, and the weed problems that we're having right now is is custom combine um operations uh -huh. we think that combines when you when they go through and harvest you know, we're, we're moving that uh, soybean straw through the combine and those sclerotia are, are getting trapped in crevices just like weed seeds would uh, uh -huh. in a combine. And so uh, and then that combine moves to another field and, you know, they flip on the, the rotor and off they go and they blow that that uh, those sclerotia back out in the field. So we think that's a really important piece. Uh, and so we've spent a lot of time trying to educate uh, farmers on, you know, one of the best things you can do is make sure the combine's clean when you move from one field to the next and then know which fields are, are heavy 
um, with white mold and then go to those fields last, you know, in terms of harvest, you know, just to try to keep that sclerotial movement from one field to the next down to a, a minimum. Um, the other, the other thing that we're seeing driving some of this too, and, and probably the increased incidence and severity we've seen over the last five years or so is, is the fact that we're also pushing maturity groups on soybeans, which, um, when you, when you push maturity group in an environment, it expands that flowering period. And so there's a longer window of opportunity for the fungus to infect. Oh. And then we're also seeing changing environment, you know, sort of, sort of on top of that. So, you know, there, there's some increased opportunity for the fungus here, uh, to, to move itself, and then humans, you know, on top, moving, moving the organism, you know, probably through combine operations and that sort of thing. So let, let's go back to the mechanical component for a minute and kind of two questions to, big, to piggyback on each other. So what is the sclerotia made of, first of all? Like, like, actually, what is it? And then in the context of our ability to mitigate some of that movement, what does it mean to clean out a combine or, or what technology is available to kind of assist with that? Because when I think about a, a very fine particle throughout those machines, so walk me through that. Yeah, that was a great question. So first, the first off, the sclerotium is an interesting uh, uh, propagule because it it's actually made of the same white stuff that is erupting from the plants uh, earlier in the season. So we call that stuff mycelium or, or the, you know, a single thread of that is actually called a hypha. And so these are very fine thread-like appendages or, or, you know, whatever you want to call it. That's what the fungus is actually made of. And essentially what happens is, is there's a trigger that causes those uh, threads to basically knot up. So they get wound together and then uh, they actually, there's a modified form of that mycelium that forms that hard rind on the outside and then that melanizes. Uh, so it, it takes on that black, that black color. Now, if you catch it just right, you can actually see that process happening. You can catch what we call the initials in the field. Mm -hmm. You'll actually see the white balls. They'll start to form, but they won't actually be melanized yet. Um, you know, so if you're hunting around in there and you see these little white balls that are sort of associated uh, with the with the damage you're seeing, those are probably the initials that just haven't melanized yet. Uh, it's really important that, that melanization happens because that that hardened rind is what really protects the the living um, mycelium that's that's uh, wound up inside that that uh, structure. And it's it's really interesting because those structures also can take on you know, the, the shape of the inside of the plant, you know, depending on where they form, you know, they might be nice round balls if they're on the outside, or they may actually be more of an oblong, almost submarine shaped uh, type structure wow. if they form inside the plant. So they can form in different spaces in and around the plant and take on those different shapes and sizes, which is, which is really interesting. Uh, as far as, you know, combine cleaning, I, I'm also the director of the Nutrient Pest Management Program here at the University of Wisconsin, and they've done a, a couple of videos just on how to clean a combine from a weed uh, management standpoint. And, and I think everything that they talk about there from a weed management standpoint uh, holds 100% true to, you know, what we want to do to clean a combine to get rid of sclerotia. Those sclerotia are going to be hiding in the same spots. So, you know, they get caught up in the 
in the inner workings of that combine. And so taking some time to blow out debris with a leaf blower, uh, maybe, maybe gaining some, uh, you know, straw to drive down through to just flush some of that material that may be stuck in there. Uh, there's some really good pointers in those videos that uh, folks can check out just to, you know, really understand what it takes to clean a combine. And you can do a pretty good job in about 20 to 30 minutes. You know, you don't have to like, you know, spend hours and hours at this, but just really, you know, honing in on the critical internal spaces where things can get caught and, and we just don't even think about it, you know, because these, you know, little structures are so small. If we want to share those videos with our audience, where would we find those? Yeah, they're on the uh, NPM uh, website. So if you go to ipcm.wisc.edu, uh, you'll find a series of, of you know, web pages and video links, and you can find your way to our uh, YouTube channel, uh, and they'll be they'll be on that YouTube channel. Excellent. Yeah, we'll we'll make sure we find those and link them in the uh, in the show notes. I think that'd be really valuable. Yeah, absolutely. So, so Damon, let's talk more about the sclerotia in in the germination process. You kind of touched on it with with the canopy earlier. What what triggers that sclerotia to germinate and, and produce an apothecia? Yeah, this has been uh, for the last uh, ten or twelve years of my career. <laughs> basically, the the science side of my career is trying to understand that process. Um, it, it, and we understand parts of it, but we don't actually understand all of it yet. So, we know that there's some really important microenvironment triggers there, and it is tied to canopy closure. And we've worked on this. Um, you know, in my lab, we worked with Marty Childers over at Michigan State. Um, you know, and, and essentially you have to have that, that canopy closure. And prior to some of our work, a lot of folks thought, well, you know, it's probably humidity driving a lot of that. Mm -hmm. um, but it turns out that, that that is partially true. But we also think that light uh, has a substantial uh, part of this as well. And what I mean by that is, is actually um, shading and then filtering the right wavelengths of light. So what's really interesting, and we've done some of this in, in the lab where we, we can actually force the germination of these apothecia in the lab. If we remove uh, some of the ultraviolet light spectrum, so we can use filters to actually knock out those spectra, if we remove those UV wavelengths, we actually don't get full formation of, of the cup on top of this little, we call it a stipe, it's essentially a little stem. So that's really interesting because there was some follow-up work actually out of, out of Cornell Serapethi Bridges lab where they actually did a, a similar thing where they forced apothecia to develop in the lab and then they carried them out to the field and buried them under rye cover crop, or crimped rye cover crop. And what they learned there is the same thing that, you know, under that rye cover crop, the, the it seems like the certain wavelengths that are really important for formation get filtered out. And so the, the cups actually don't form. You'll actually get the stem. All of that can happen in the dark, but it, unless those UV wavelengths are there, you don't actually get formation of the cup. So hmm. we've been, you know, following up on that, trying to do some experiments to really understand you know, what specific wavelengths uh, are really important there? And then how does that, uh, how does that actually accomplished in the field as that, as that canopy cover, um, you know, basically becomes dense enough to, to make that get all filtered out essentially. So it's, it's a really complicated process. There's probably some other things we've been messing around with cold treatments and weathering and some other things to try to understand that process. 
Uh, and it actually is really tough. There must be a lots of very variations of things in terms of light and temperature and moisture components that all play a role there. And you have to get those combinations right. And on top of that, it seems like different isolates or different populations of the fungus actually have different requirements. So, it, hmm. you know, it's there's a range there that people report, uh, you know, cooler conditions and, you know, adequate moisture has been used a lot. But, you know, that actually... It's probably a lot wider uh, as you start to expand uh, the genetics uh, of the fungus itself. Every every time we do one of these podcasts, I, I find myself somewhere between like super impressed by the people that are working on this stuff and also just scared to death because it's so <laughs> complex, right? I mean, I mean, we've spent so much time talking about tar spot and this stuff is just so challenging, but um, we'll go back to that. But Andrew, I keep going with your line of questioning here. I, I, I like where this is headed. Yeah. So man, that's interesting stuff. I mean, it sounds like it has a lot to do with the whole red to far red ratio with, within a canopy, which would impact that. Right, Damon? It's actually the blue light, interestingly enough. Okay. So ultraviolet. So below, below about 400 nanometers, which is really interesting because it, it, that there's actually a set of wavelengths that, that are pretty narrow. So once you get down below, say, 300 nanometers, those actually become uh, antimicrobial. So, you know, you, you've probably seen the lights that hang over over the top of a food service line or something yeah. like that. Yep. You know, th those are meant to be, you know, help with antimicrobial, um, you know, keep things clean. And so what's really interesting is this fungus is responding to a very narrow wavelength that's uh, somewhere below 400 and above 300 nanometers. It's right in that space there, hmm. which is really close to these sort of dangerous wavelengths, right? But it, it has to have those. If we knock out those uh, wavelengths with our filters, th th we do not get that cup formation. So it's really, really and interesting. And we're, again, trying to figure out what the interactions of moisture and all that stuff, you know, how that plays a role. Uh, so... Um, you know, complicated, but, you know, when we did our work with Marty uh, over in, at Michigan State, he had a postdoc that looked at just canopy closure. And we do know that that canopy has to be 40 percent or more closed between the rows um, before we can even start to get formation of complete formation of the apothecia even in row. So, you know, when when we look at fields where we don't have you know, canopy closure or canopy closure is really delayed. We can actually escape this whole yeah. uh, apothecial development thing, which is really interesting. Well, and that's, that's kind of where my mind goes. So the bulk of the business that, that I have is in central Iowa and, and for whatever reason, we're primarily still 30 inch rows. We've seen, it seems like a continuation of delayed row closure. Um, but I've always heard, you know, you suffer from white mold more, when you are on 15 inch rows. And I've always assumed that was humidity and, and airflow, but maybe we're just significantly increasing that length of time that that, that that light interaction can happen. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a place where we've just finished up some work with a graduate student. I had, we've been looking at the 15 versus 30 inch row spacings and then layering planting populations on top of that. And then layering fungicide applications on top of that to try to tease out you know, the effects that was surprising, you know, we, when we went into that work, we were, you know, our hypothesis was, well, we'll have, you know, less, we're going to have less, uh, you know, of an issue on the 30 inch row spacing. It, it probably won't, won't matter about population. And, 
et cetera, et cetera, sort of the, our old mindset. And we went into that actually learning that uh, 15s were fine uh, and help preserve the yield potential. And actually, the bigger reduction in white mold comes from the population. So if we drop those populations down to about 120,000 um, huh. at planting, uh, you know, that's a substantial reduction in, in white mold uh, right there. So you can you can stay in the 15s to hmm. keep that yield potential there and just get serious about dropping the planting populations to help you on those heavy white mold acres. Wow, that's really good to know. Man, for years, you just assumed you, <laughs> you go to northern Iowa, you should be on 30s because of that. But it sounds like just reducing population would, would benefit growers and reduce white mold risk. Yeah, we, we and we've been doing this work with uh, Sean Conley here, our agronomist, and, and he's even, you know, promoting po- uh, planting populations even lower than that, you know, around 100,000 right now. Yeah. So, you know, folks are experimenting with this. I think there's some opportunities as well. If you have uh, prescription planting technology, look at, you know, yield maps and adjust your populations where, you know, you might have white molds uh, in a certain section, you know, drop the populations there and then maybe up the populations in the, in the areas that you don't seem to have a heavy white mold infestation. So there's some ways around, you know, sort of capturing that planting population thing and, and using that for your white mold management program. Yeah. I told, I told Sean when we interviewed him that I, I'm starting to struggle with all these uh, agronomists that keep telling me to lower my population. It, it doesn't fit my business uh, sales goals very well, but uh, uh, agronomically there's probably benefit to it. So, so, so Damon, you know, white mold feels like it's a little bit more complicated than a lot of diseases we deal with. You know, you, you got the, the sclerotia that have to germinate, apothecia, ascospores, and then you got to infect that, you know, that you, fa- you factor in the whole timing thing with a dead, a, a dead soybean flower. Is, is there any differences? Have you ever noticed, you know, with, with that entire process, does there seem to be any differences in the environmental conditions that favor apothecia germination versus ascospore ejection and then the infection of that leaf, or is it all very similar in, in the environmental conditions that may favor that? Yeah, no, there, there's, you know, there's, there's weather to make the sclerotium germinate, right? And then there's also weather that allows the spore to, um, you know, infect and then colonize the plant. And those two things don't necessarily have to be the same. However, if you have apothecia out, we know that spores are, are flying. So the opportunity is really pretty good. And if you have, you know, any type of wetting event, whether it comes from dew or rain uh, during that flowering period, then conditions are likely conducive uh, to support the infection. So once the once the fungus is inside the plant and colonizing, the, the weather requirements kind of become maybe less important at that time. Not, not completely unimportant, but probably less important because now the fungus is protected by the plant, right? So, you know, when we're trying to think through our management plans and trying to understand flowering, you know, one, one thing you can do is, you know, think about maturity group on those heavy white mold acres. I really think that the bloom time duration and, you know, how do we, how do we maximize that for yield, but balance that, you know, in the heavy white mold areas, right? So what you don't want to have happen is you push maturity group so hard that, you know, your, your flowering time gets, pushed out for, you know, a month or more, that would be sort of bad from a white mold standpoint. Um, and so we, we do, we try to recommend folks really think about that, you know, and, and think about being 
you know, reasonable about what maturity group you can grow. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I appreciate the fact that folks really want to push yield. The problem with this disease is it's a high yield disease. So the harder yep. you're pushing yield, the more likely you're, you're, you know, you're pushing the white mold situation. So you just have to be careful there. And it is a fine balance. And I know there's that inclination to really, really get crazy with maturity groups in, in some areas, but we just have to sort of be rational and think about that, that bloom time. You know, so we, you know, we've seen where you put a sh- really short maturity group. If you put a short maturity group and plant it really early, it'll escape. Hmm. You know, it's, it basically will go through bloom before the apothecia can develop and before you get those conducive conditions. The The downside is, is you're, you're probably not going to maximize yield uh, in that type of situation. So you just have to think about how do we balance that and sort of get that maturity group really optimized in those locations is, you know, in terms of, you know, the weather that kind of drives the disease development side of it, you know, that, that you were asking that, that really becomes the humidity, wetness, rain thing, right? So after you have that infection process, we can see, you know, really rapid development of disease if, if we have those nice humid conditions and kind of moderate temperatures. It does slow down a little bit as we get hotter so as you know once it gets up into the 80s and low 90s you know that that whole process does slow down a little bit but it doesn't really shut the fungus down completely so once once that weather cools again it can keep colonizing and and causing some damage there once you have the infection and it's and it's moved into the plant through those flowers how is it spreading within the plant yeah, so it, it, that's a that's another really interesting question. So it's you know so if you envision the flower and it the flat the minute the flower comes out, it's actually a dying part of the plant. So flowers are actually senescing once they open, mm-hmm. and the fungus loves senescing plant parts. So it it'll actually utilize that as a as a food source as it's as it's trying to colonize. Once it makes its way into the stem, it can either go up or down. It, it doesn't matter. It just kind of goes to the path of the least resistance, we think. And so, you know, it's not an unusual to see a, a node, a flowering node, where uh, the the infection actually proceeds on either side. So it, it can go in and actually go both ways. And so that's really interesting and in, in just trying to follow that. When, you know, when we actually rate, when we actually take disease notes in the field, we actually look at that. We actually look at where the infection is actually present on the plant and how severe that infection actually is because that plays a role in terms of how much yield loss we get. Some resistant varieties will actually stop uh, the formation hmm. or, or complete development of that lesion. They'll actually stop that process actively and so that's really important that we chart that as we do our ratings because that can give us an idea you know whether a certain variety might be more resistant than another one a lot of times we'll go in and we'll just see you know (laughs) it'll look like napalm went off you know (laughs) with with plants completely leveled but you know we do come across those cases where we can actually see there's there's some sort of active resistance mechanism actually happening in the plant so that's that's really interesting that is interesting um so so with that is do those do the seeds on an infected plant become infected and and then is is can this uh disease be spread via seed Yes and yes, yeah. So it can go up into the into the uh, uh, pod and colonize the seed and seed coat. 
so it's not unusual to see a lot of really damaged seed. Uh, the assumption is that when the seed go then to the seed cleaning process that a lot of those find their way out. The, the concern that we have is sometimes those seed look pretty good and they might just be slightly colonized and make it through that process. So that is a way in which you can transmit it uh, is through seed. Uh, uh, however, I don't know, you know, we, I don't think we have a great grasp of how, um, how significant that actually could be. It's probably fairly low if we compare it to the combine movement. I still think that combine and, and humans just moving it around on equipment is probably the bigger uh, place to transmit, but certainly seed is really important. And if you had a seed field that was just absolutely pounded with white mold, you might think, you know, you might want to do some extra cleaning and inspection or, or think about maybe not taking that for seed if it was, you know, super, super bad in that particular area. Yeah. So, so with that too, Damon, um, can, can you get white mold infection in the roots, you know, think of it kind of like SDS, right? We have a root rot phase and a foliar phase. Is this something that that pathogen, you know, if those spores were to germinate in the soil can actually infect roots? Yeah, this is uh this has been a train of thought. Darren Mueller at Iowa State and I have been having debates over the years on how, Who's that guy? how frequent that actually <laughs> happens. So um he, and he actually owes me some ice cream and steak over this debate. So <laughs> he owes me a lot of El Azteca. Mexican. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, uh, you know, yes, it, we do think that, um, so, so there's another way that those sclerotia can actually germinate, uh, and we call that eruptively or mycelogenically. And so instead of actually forming that mushroom, they can actually uh, form mycelium directly and then maybe grow through the soil and infect a root system. In the environments that I work in, I don't get the impression that that is too significant. It, it likely happens, but when we are rating and looking at our um, at our at where the placement of those lesions are on the plant, they're usually always up above the soil line, right? Yep. So, you know, that's a good place to kind of look and understand where is that lesion developing in relation to where the soil line is. If it's coming from the soil line, then you know, likely very good that that might have happened that way but at least in my assessment it's a fairly low percentage it is possible people have demonstrated that it can happen in greenhouse inoculation situations but you know darren and i have been thinking about how can we actually look at that you know what is the frequency of that and maybe there's certain varieties that it's more prone or, or certain uh, genetics uh, uh, on the fungal side that are more prone to that type of infection so it happens but I don't know if it happens as frequently as as we see the actual ascospore infections in, in soybean. Um, <laughs> I think we could go uh, all day on the actual pathogen. Uh, I I'm it's my responsibility to bring it back to grower management. Um, so let's switch gears. Let's think about grower management. Thank you for joining us for another episode of A Penny for Your Thoughts. As always, we love feedback from our listeners. Please email us at a penny for your thoughts at gmail.com or reach out to Andrew and I on our social media. We'll chat at you next week.